I want to do a couple of things. I want to introduce my wonderful wife and uh, tell you a little bit about her. And then, um, I don't know if Joan is willing, we might even do a song for you. Uh, I thought we might do a call and response song like I thought I wasn't going to tell you about. But um, Joan and I grew up in Newark, New Jersey. Joan was born and raised there, and we wound up living on the same block uh, in the same housing project. We went to the same grammar school, the same high school, and uh, got saved in the same church. And uh, we met each other when we were about 15. Uh, the day I met her, I knew I would marry her um, just as soon as I saw her. And I had noticed her before. I just want you to know that. Uh, but that day that I, she was coming out to our youth group, Immediately, I knew, and uh, wisely did not say that. <laughs> but uh, the Lord, uh, we were in a, a very wonderful youth group and a very intense uh, training uh, during our high school years by our pastor who mentored young people very, very uh, right in your face. And uh, the Lord used him to really help Joan get to uh, college. Um, she Nobody in her family had gone, but uh, she kind of resisted the whole idea. Uh, but the pastor kind of forced the issue on her. And so she wound up at Covenant College. She was the first African-American female to go to Covenant College and graduate. And so today, the Black Student Association is named in her honor and in the honor of the first African-American male to go to there are only two of them. And uh, so Joan has been the first African American in several situations. First one in my marriage, uh, as a matter of fact. And we got married uh, when we were in college, so we've been married 46 years. We have four kids, we were working on our 11th grandchild. And uh, we have been incredibly blessed by God. Uh, Joan was a singer from her early days. I first heard her sing when we were in the eighth grade. And um, then in high school, we went to a school for the arts. She went for music. I went for painting and drawing. Uh, so I got to hear her sing several times. Uh, in, it was one of, in those days, we didn't have magnet schools, but uh, it was called Arts High Schools. It was a, kind of a special school in our city. And uh, so Joan has at one time been the only African-American in Mission to the World as a missionary. Uh, we still continue to have very, very few African Americans in foreign missions. Joan and I spent two years in Kenya, in Nairobi, as missionaries. And, uh, and with her musical talents, her love for black people, African Americans, uh, she has brought a lot to the table in terms of our church as a mission church, as a cross-cultural church. Uh, her grandmothers, uh, one grandmother was in the Church of God in Christ. One grandmother was in the National Black National Baptist Church, so she has a great heritage of uh, African American worship. Um, but a lot of it has been learned uh, being in a cross-cultural situation, trying to introduce folks uh, to it. So you're going to hear a lot in her presentation about some of those dynamics and things. But she uh, and I have really been partners, uh, very much ideological, theological partners in pursuing cross-cultural ministry. Um, so she's been a great wife, a great mother, but I want you to know that she really thinks theologically and she thinks in terms of ministry. So 
it's great for us to be able to argue, bounce things off each other, uh, deal with issues of justice and mercy and uh, culture. We have, these are things in a cross-cultural church you have to think about all the time. Um, and uh, But it's a joy to do it in the knowledge that Jesus is king and he is Lord over heaven and earth. And uh, there's no problem he can't figure out for us. So we, we don't ever end up at a point of despair about it, but always in hope. So let's have a word of prayer. And, uh, Father God, thank you for the lunch we had. Thank you for the people who've come. We pray for endurance for the people who've been here all morning, that they might be able to still learn and, and uh, enjoy what's being said. And Lord, we really want this to be your glory and not to ours. So use it uh, for the good of your church. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And I thought it might be good for us to show you a, a song. Start off with a song. Actually, I thought about starting off with a song. I didn't think of the song you thought of. Oh, you want to guess No, 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 no. Yours, yours is probably better. <laughs> uh, in, a, in, our, in the African-American tradition, a lot of our songs are call and response. So we're going to do one of those that we do a lot at New City. It was one of our... In our church, in the history of our church, this is one of the first songs we learned from the African American church. So why don't you all stand up? Because we're all tired of sitting. And uh, basically, I sing a line, and then you all just repeat it. And in that way, we get through the whole song. And we're going to go through it a couple of times and see how this goes. Randy will sing your part. And I'll try. Yeah. Okay. So let's clap. <laughs> I said I wasn't gonna tell nobody, but I couldn't keep it to myself. Oh, I couldn't keep it to myself. Oh, I couldn't keep it to myself. I said I wasn't gonna tell nobody, but I couldn't keep it to myself. What the Lord has done for me. You ought to be there. You ought to be
some thoughts that I've had over the, over the years on uh, worship and racial reconciliation. Um, our church, New City Fellowship in Chattanooga, just celebrated, we just celebrated last November, our 40th anniversary. So we've been kind of at this for a long time. One of the ways the Lord has blessed us is that from our very inception, from the very first time we met as a church, we knew that because we were planted in an all-African-American neighborhood, with a lot of poor people around us, that our mission and our vision was to bring those people into our church, not to use them as projects and keep them out there, but we wanted them in the pews with us worshiping together. And so our style of worship comes directly from that mission and that vision. And um, our mission and vision as a church, and I'll read, I think, what is actually on... Um, well, let's see. Maybe I won't. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah, our mission and vision is to bring uh, blacks and whites together in one worshiping community. I can't find the actual statement here. I thought I had it somewhere, but it, it vanished. That happens to me a lot when I'm speaking. So our, 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 our uh, worship style comes directly from who we want to be as a church, and that's been from, it's from the very beginning of our church. That's what we've done. Um, we have a lot of reasons why we think uh, what we're doing, that is having a multiracial church in our setting in Chattanooga that's mostly African-American white and increasingly Latino people worshiping together, we believe it's, it's scriptural. And so we um, have a, a lot of a, a scriptural basis for what we do. And I'm just going to share with you some of those scriptures. Um, at least I will try. Um, one of the reasons why we are trying to be a multiracial, multicultural church in, in our city in Chattanooga is that we are trying to be a model of the kingdom of God. Um, we read in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 7, verse 9, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne, and for the lamb, and they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Um, here we have a picture of what heaven's going to be like. Um, and in heaven, there are going to be people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And somehow, even in heaven, our cultural differences are going to be apparent. And so we are trying to model what we're going to be like in heaven here on earth. Um, we also, another reason why we try to become, have, why we try to become a multiracial, multicultural church was that it's a practical way to show love to one another. Um, John 13, 34 through 35 says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Um, as we worship together and out of our different cultures and different ones of us, um, as we grow more and more acclimated to the different kinds of worship styles that we have in our, in our, in our congregation, it's a practical way to show that love to each other. Um, as, as we worship together at New City, uh, we do all kinds of different genres and different kinds of, of, of music and um, Sometimes it's a song that comes out of my tradition, and sometimes it's a song that's coming out of somebody else's tradition. 
And just learning to appreciate the different worship styles is a, is a very practical way to show one of, love to one another. Another thing that we think about as we think about multicultural worship is that Jesus, um, when he was living here on earth, he put the interests of others before himself. Uh, Philippians 2, 3 through 8 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you should look to the interests of others. And so as we share um, our different worship styles and our different cultures, um, and those, uh, those uh, as we think about the different worship styles that we all have, in, that we have in, in our church, um, we, we put one in a, we put the other person's culture, the other person's interests, the other person's needs up before those of our, of ourselves. Um, I'm going to tell a story that of something that happened um, to Randy and I. Oh, it's been it's been over a year ago now. Um, something that happened when we were in a, visiting a church in a small southern city. Um, and it's, it's, I tell this story to help illustrate uh, the rest of my talk. Um, but we were visiting a, a PCA church a few years ago. It's a it's a church. It was an all white PCA church. It was a traditional. YPCA church, it was very middle, upper middle, actually wealthy <laughs> church. Um, and we, uh, the first night we were there, uh, we had dinner with the elders. Um, the first night we were there, we had dinner with the session. And because then, and this, the people in the session, they, it, it was an all white session, of course, for PCA. And so I was sitting there at dinner with about eight or ten men who were uh, the elders in this church and they were trying to describe for us uh, what their church was like. Um, this church very recently over the past few years had decided as a church to begin a ministry and a housing project that wasn't too terribly far away from the church but it wasn't exactly in the neighborhood. Um, and so they were partnering with an elementary school in this very core neighborhood and they were having a lot of success. They were, made, they were building relationships with the people in the school. Um, they were building relationships with the, the neighborhood that actually surrounded the school, which was um, very poor and mostly Afri African-American. And they had a lot of questions for us because they were trying to figure out, well, how does this, this ministry that we're doing over here kind of, how do we help that to be reflected how do we get those people into our church? Or should they even be in our church? They were asking those kinds of questions. And how do those, the, how do those two ministries, the ministry of our church over here and the ministry we're having in this uh, school and housing project over there, how, how can they intersect in any way? And so and we were talking about it and the, the, the elders, uh, the sense that, that we were getting from them was that they all thought that this was a wonderful thing to do. But, um, they weren't really sure um, going forward just how that would affect their mini the ministry, how the ministry that they were doing would affect their church, and if they if what they were doing was even a good thing. And in the middle of the, our discussion, uh, one of the elders, as we were talking about, maybe your church might need to change a little bit <laughs> if you really want to be effective in what you're doing. And it was at that point that one of the elders said, "Well." 
I don't know. <laughs> and he was being very honest. He said, I don't know if I want my church to change at all. And um, there was, he had questions. Uh, he did, he was very happy with the way his church worked. He was happy with the way his church worshiped. He did not, he was, he was kind of afraid of any kind of change. Um, and that seemed to be a pervasive attitude among the elders. And the next day we talked to the staff who basically said, well, you know, we are a white Presbyterian church and we have a fairly large uh, pastoral staff. And basically, if we don't get the money, <laughs> uh, our church will not be able to survive. But in order for us to keep getting the money, you know, let's not rock that, that boat. And the very next night, uh, we had dinner with uh, some of the African-Americans who were actually members of that church. I think um, this, this is a church that had about 300 people in it, and maybe 10 remember, uh, ten of their membership were African-American, and we had dinner with six of them. At their request, they did not want any of the church leaders there um, because they wanted this opportunity to talk to us and to be really honest. Um, and basically what they said was that they really were behind the ministry that the church was having in that housing project. They thought it was a wonderful thing. They thought there were ways that the, that the, that the church could make that ministry become more effective. Um, but they universally, as in six black people in this all-white PCA church, they said they wanted to see more minorities in the leadership of the church. At that point, none. None of the leaders in the church were um, any kind of minority. They were all white men. Um, and they universally had problems with the worship. One of the men who was at that meeting actually participated in worship, but, and he only did it because he really wanted to figure out ways to serve in that church. But the, other, the attitude of some of the other African Americans in that room, especially in particular one of the women, she said even though she'd come from a tradition where she had been leading worship for most of her life in her uh, previous African-American church, um, she said she would never volunteer to be on a praise team in that church. She said, and this is a quote, she said, it would kill my soul <laughs> to do that. They also felt strongly that when they expressed dissatisfaction, with their roles in the church and how the church was moving forward to become more multiracial, more multicultural, that the church wasn't, wasn't really, they thought that they weren't really being listened to at all. Um, people would say, you know, tell me what you think and then nothing would happen. Um, they didn't think their church at bottom was willing to change. And with tears, um, that same woman said, you know, why, why do we as minorities have to make all the sacrifices to be here? Um, these are, these, <laughs> she was talking about the elders specifically. She said, they're, they're grown men. <laughs> why, why haven't they so far in their history as Christians learned any of these hard truths about how to even become multiracial or multicultural? Why, why is the burden always on us? Um, if you and your church want to become more, or become at all, cross-cultural in your worship, this is one of the, fir the first things you have to learn, is that in order for this to really work, everybody has to give up something. Um, black people, in my experience, especially in Chattanooga, it's been kind of funny, um, we, get the, we give up the right to be normal black people. 
Uh, we are looked on with a lot of suspicion uh, from African Americans that are in traditional uh, black churches. Everyone thinks about, well not everyone, a lot of people think we're a little off. Uh, we're often asked the question, why do you go to church with those white people? We're thought of as maybe trying to run away from being black and um, all that that means in the wider American context, especially you know during times like these where there's so much um, in the media about racism and race, um, it's hard then to go to church and be surrounded by people who, um, you know, in their other lives, away from black people, um, have uh, very conservative opinions. You know, maybe they voted for Trump or whatever. Um, so, um, and also as African Americans, we give up leadership and we give up the power that we would have if we were if we were to stay in an all-black church. We give up the ability to worship in our own heart language and in our own worship style. White people give up some power and the right for their culture to completely dominate the worship style of the church. <clears throat> that white elder wasn't really wrong in what he said. He did recognize that he wouldn't be happy if the worship of his church changed. And even though I'm, sh even though uh, even today, I'm not sure he quite understood um, what that change, what that change would look and feel like. He had made a judgment regarding black music and culture. He was unfamiliar with it. He is uncomfortable with it. He is afraid of it. And the fact is that African American music and culture are different um, from white music and culture. And he was faced with the possibility of having to deal with that difference in the context of worship. Um, the fact is that the worship, uh, the worship cultures of African Americans and white Americans in this country come out of very different experiences. Blacks in this country came to understand the one true God from a very different place than whites did. Um, white culture was birthed in Northern, in, in Northern Europe um, between 550 AD and 1517 which was the year of the Protestant Reformation in Germany. Congregations pretty much didn't sing at all. Um, if you've ever been to Europe and seen the beautiful cathedrals, they're full of art. The church services were conducted in Latin, and many of the people who came to those services didn't speak Latin in their normal lives. They spoke English or German. Um, the choir, on the other hand, sang in Latin, the preaching was in Latin. There was very little that happened in the service that people could actually understand. It was hoped that they would learn something from the art on the walls. Um, the rest was beautiful and mysterious, like they were told God was. This is why Martin Luther and a lot of the other reformers were often hymn writers. They began to write hymns in the languages that the people actually spoke. And the songs that they wrote were full of theology, so that the people, as they sang, could express the truths found in Scripture and remember them. There was also a great psalm singing tradition of just actually singing the psalms and writing those down and putting those to music. African Americans, on the other hand, came to this country from Africa. And African culture, if you're all familiar with it, is very communal and very participative, very participatory. For African Americans, music, uh, worship music has never been a spectator sport. We don't just sit and absorb 
we listen to a singer in a choir, we're admiring the skill and the art that's involved, and we're also admiring the personal experience that's expressed in the music or in the preaching. I think uh, that we all yearn to know that God is helping and guiding us in our daily lives. And hearing about somebody else's experience of God's presence in their lives that's expressed through music and feeling the emotion behind it when somebody else is singing or when we're singing causes our hearts to be stirred and our faith to grow. And it always calls for a response. For an African-American, worship is a lot more of a communal experience. <clears throat> we had a really cool, uh, one of the cool things that's happened to our family personally is one of our sons uh, is married to a Kenyan. Um, and he met and married his wife, who now lives here, uh, in Kenya. And they decided to get married in Kenya because that's where our family was. And anyway. And Randy and my daughter, one of our daughters, well, I only have one daughter. Randy, my daughter, and I, we went to Kenya for the wedding. We traveled there. Um, and uh, it wasn't really until I came back that I fully realized this, because I was looking at the photographs that I'd taken. And as I looked at those pictures, visually, it looked a whole lot like any, any typical American wedding. I mean, there was, there was a dress and the flowers and everything. But to actually be there was a completely different experience from, an, from any wedding I'd ever been to, at least here in the United States. Um, it was, uh, the service was very similar to what an American marriage service would be like, but in the middle of that, not only did the couple take vows, but everybody who was there, we took vows to help that couple. Um, there was a 30 voice choir, they sang, we all sang together. Um, the wedding guests had come for the entire day. All they wanted to do that day was to celebrate and be happy for this couple and their new lives together. And the time that we spent was as much about us being together and just enjoying one another. There was dancing, there was singing the entire day, as it was about the bride and groom. African-Americans come out of a more community-focused culture, and it shows in the way that we worship. And we also come out of a culture that was forged in suffering. Psalm 30, 11 through 12 says, You turn my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will praise you forever. Um, a little note here for all of us, whether we're in a black church or a white church or a mixed church, the congregation, we, whoever we are, are really not the audience for worship. Um, God is actually the audience, and he is the only one that should be pleased, that has to be pleased uh, by how we worship him. I have nine characteristics of... Uh, African expressions in African-American worship, and I'm going to compare and contrast them to um, white worship. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I'll go these through these pretty quickly and be done. Um, one of the first things uh, that I'll talk about is emotion. Um, Psalm 137 says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we, rem when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our hearts, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. 
and they said, sing, sing to us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? One of the reasons African Americans during slavery were drawn to Christianity was because they were able to make a direct connection in their hearts and minds to the people of Israel and the time they spent in captivity in Egypt and later Babylon and with the whole experience of slavery. And that connection was strong and powerful. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. <laughs> In sorrow, in weeping, and wailing, and in joy, for African Americans, church was always a place where we could come and express our emotional connection to God. From slavery to sharecropping to ghettos, black people found that church was the one place they could really cut loose and be themselves. Singers and hearers are participants in the exuberant experience of gospel music. They are caught up in the exciting message of hope and the passionate tone of the music. They sing songs from hearts seeking freedom and relief from God, who they saw as their only hope. All of this takes passion and energy, and so we tend to be very emotional in our worship. Um, another way that, uh, another uh, distinct expression, uh, uh, characteristic of African American music is volume. Um, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Sing for joy to God our strength. Shout aloud to the God of Jacob. These are scriptures that talk about shouting and just making some kind of noise. And there, there are a lot of songs that talk about making joyful noises. For African Americans, we aren't really bothered by loud. <laughs> it sounds good. Which has it's been kind of a, a thing at our church at New City. We've had, we, of course, have a lot of white people that worship with us. And there can be a little tension there with who gets to control the volume. <laughs> Another characteristic of, of African-American uh, musical uh, worship expression is movement. And I'm going to read a couple of passages from 2 Samuel 6, which is about David. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark, brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. And then in verse 21, David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I'll become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes, but by these you spoke of, I will be held in honor. These are a couple of excerpts from that story in 2 Samuel where David danced like a madman before the ark of the Lord. And he was so filled with joy that he literally made a fool of himself. And he was just delighted in God. And that was the way he chose to express it, by just dancing his heart out. His wife didn't think he was being dignified enough to be the king of Israel, and she rebuked him. And his response was, I will be even more dignified than this. Um... When I worship the Lord um, on a Sunday morning, it's hard for me to sit still. <laughs> and I'm often in the choir or on the praise team, so I'm standing in front, and I see people who are just 
almost standing at attention. <laughs> uh, and I, I don't get it, you know? I don't know how you can stand still and sing, but um, some people do. Um, it's, usually, it's usually a cultural divide, but a lot of the white people in our, in our congregation have taught themselves to move. You know, they, they're not, they don't have very good rhythm, but they, they, they try, they try. They make, they make that effort, which I appreciate. And others just don't bother. They're like, you know, I'm just going to stand here. But for most African Americans, moving, swaying back and forth, nodding heads, clapping hands, raising hands, and even dancing is a proper response to a great song or an inspiring sermon. And scripture seems to indicate that it's okay to move around when you worship. And really, I think it's okay if you don't want to move, but the, one of the problems we've had at our church is that other people who aren't moving kind of look with deep suspicion at <laughs> uh, people that are. And so it's probably not a good idea if somebody behind you is moving to you know, make them feel uncomfortable by staring at them. <laughs> Another uh, characteristic is spontaneity. Um, what I mean by spontaneity, in the black church, uh, the congregation participates in such a way that neither the, neither the leaders or the people know what's going to happen next. And this creates flex flexibility in a worship service, and it also accounts in part for why African-American service don't always begin and end on time. <laughs> a few years ago, um, the, my grandmother, who I already mentioned, um, she died at 91 a couple years ago, but we got to see her a few years ago. We were traveling, she lived in New Haven, we were traveling uh, through New England, and we happened to be there on a Friday night, we decided to stop and see my grandmother. And so we tried to contact her, and uh, we get on the phone, and she said, okay, you know, you're here, this is a Friday. She said, I'm, I'm on my way to church. We're like, okay. <laughs> And uh, so we, we followed her, we went with her, um, well, we, we tried to meet up with her there. And we asked her, you know, on the phone, what time is the service going to start? She said, oh, it's going to start at 9. She said, it's youth, it's, youth, it's youth night, it's youth service, and they have it on a Friday night. And so Randy and I being, you know, Presbyterian, we decided to get there at 9. <laughs> <laughs> and there were like five people there <laughs> in this big old room. And... Um, it wasn't until 10 that the pastor finally got up and started the song service. Um, there was no point in starting before that because there wasn't anybody there. But as, as, as uh, the song service went on, more and more people came. Uh, then finally the praise team got up and they started singing and more and more people came. And uh, different gospel groups started singing. They, they took turns singing. And uh, we were having a great time, but we were tired. We'd been traveling all day to get there. And so about, at around 11, <laughs> we decided we, had, we, we were going to go. And so we said goodnight to my grandmother. And uh, as we were leaving, people were still coming. Buses were still pulling up. I mean, this, this place eventually was packed. And um, I called my aunt the next day, and I said, you know, what time did you guys get home? My grandmother's 89 years old at this time. I said, what time did you guys get home? And she said, it was a quarter to three. <laughs> that's how long that service was. I mean, that's an extreme example. <laughs> but apparently, that's how they do business in this, in this uh, Church of God in Christ. And it's the one my, my grandmother used to take me to when I was a little girl. And I remember, we never got out of church. Um, <laughs> Another, another difference, uh, 
or cultural expression is ad-libbing or lining. Psalm 40, verse 1 says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on, on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see it and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. In the gospel tradition, a singer often will line out a song several bars ahead of the congregation. In, in other words, telling the people what they should sing next. Um, this is a valuable technique and it's actually necessary if the song has never been written down or if you don't have any books or if you can't read. In these situations, it's helpful to have a, a leader sing what you're supposed to sing next. Often the lining is sung, and the leader will improvise on the line as he sings it ahead of the congregation. In this way, even a very familiar song becomes a little bit different every time it's sung. And it is a very important characteristic of African-American music. And I think it's also another reason why often if you go to African-American churches, there are choirs. Um, a lot of churches, especially contemporary churches, Randy and I visit a lot of, of, of younger uh, uh, white churches, and there's usually a praise team. They don't bother with choirs anymore. But in the African-American church, you almost have to have a choir because you have to have somebody following the leader. <laughs> and it, 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 uh, it, it, it helps um, with the lining. And the other thing it helps with, with is, which is the next impro uh, characteristic I'm going to talk about, is improvisation. It's kind of hard to, to improvise on a line if you're the only one singing. You really need a choir that's kind of backing you up to make that happen. But improvisation is similar to lining and it involves repetition. In black music, <laughs> lines are often repeated many times, especially at the end of the song. Um, one of our former associate pastor's wives, they were, they were also church, they were also Kojic. Um, and um, she called that the special chorus, where you just get to the end of the song and just repeat the same line over and over again. Um, it can be pretty annoying for people that want a lot of content. <laughs> but in the African-American tradition, that's, that's just the part of, of how the song goes. And the singer and the congregation get to remember and, it, and to rehearse in their mind um, what God has done for them. One example of this is Fred Hammond's song. It's one of my favorite songs, Jesus, the Offense Around Me. And at the end of the song, he's just singing Jesus, well, the choir is singing Jesus, the Offense, Jesus, the Offense. And Fred Hammond is reminding us all the different times Jesus was offense. Jesus protected me. He protects me, he protects my mother, my father. Uh, my sister, my brother, and in your head, you get to rehearse, you get to remember, yeah, God did help me here. He helped me again here. He helped me this time, too. And the, the more, so, you know, even though it can sound kind of annoying to people looking in from the outside, for, for us, as we're doing it, it's, it, just, it just helps us to, to really, really connect uh, with that one thought by remembering all the times God did help us. Um, there are examples of that in, in classical music, you know, the Hallelujah Chorus, so it's kind of just the one word repeating, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. <laughs> and then a new thought is introduced, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns, and then you sing Hallelujah, Hallelujah again, you know. Another uh, um, 
An example of that is Psalm, Psalm 118, uh, where it repeats the line, His love endures forever. His love endures forever. You get to remember, you know, God's love endures forever. So that, that's, that's an important part of African-American music, and it's also one that's often not understood by white people um, for some reason. They think it's, they need more content, I guess. <laughs> um, another difference is common themes in African-American music. Um, for you, Lord, delivered me from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Psalm 116. Psalm, uh, Revelation 21 says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. In the African-American gospel tradition, themes have to do more with God's helping and delivering the individual and comforting, the in comforting people in their trials. The tradition, the, this tradition began with spirituals whose lyrics were often based on Bible stories and concepts of moral behavior. They especially highlight stories about Moses, who represented freedom from bondage, and Jesus, who also suffered injustice. We also like to sing songs about heaven, and where things are going to be very different than they are here, and the place where we are going to be reunited with our loved ones. This knowledge that we would see our loved ones again was especially important to a people who lived with the knowledge that their whole family could be sold away from them, and your brightest hope was that someday you'd be reunited with them in heaven. There is also a difference in black and white gospel and white music and who is addressed. Unlike other genres, traditional gospel music does not address God directly, but these songs usually rehearse what God is doing in the life of the believer and what the believer hopes God will do. But the more modern gospel writers, um, that, that isn't so true anymore. That's more true of the older uh, traditional gospel songs. The last, yeah. next thing I want to talk about is preaching. In that day you will say, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among, among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be made known in all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. That's Isaiah 12, 4-6. In the African-American tradition, sermons and prayers are often sung. In the South, they, use, they call this hooping. And a preacher will tell a story or deliver a sermon in simple, direct words, and each line is given a response by the people, such as Amen, Hallelujah, Help and Lord, and my all-time favorite, which was, uh, Oh Lord, please don't let them stop preaching. <laughs> it often sounds a lot like a conversation between the preacher and the congregation. And one book that I read said that some scholars think this is the origin of spirituals, this call and, re this call and response sort of sermonizing that was eventually written down and then sung. I know at New City, on a, at our church up in, in Chattanooga on a Sunday morning, there, there are at least two guys in there that, honestly, I think the rest of us feel like we're just kind of overhearing the conversation. He and the pastor are just talking to each other. But it, it's, it's, it can be a, a really wonderful thing. It, it encourages everybody to respond as well. And the last thing I'm going to talk about is the shout. Um, 
This is not something we do a whole lot at New City, but it's done in a lot of Pentecostal denominations. The shout is a very physical and local expression of praise. It involves dancing and shouting and screaming, sometimes and calling on God. It is a believer's way of very fervently praising and glorifying God in a very visible and vocal way. And for many people, it's frankly a turn-off. But I think it can, and often is, if it's, if it's done in a heartfelt way, a, a real expression of worshiping God. Um, last thing I'm going to talk about is the problem of interpretation. Um, as we think about the differences between African American and white culture and worship, often what we're dealing with is a difference in interpretation. For someone from another culture looking in, our exuberance and passion is viewed as people being out of control or just being loud and noisy. Improvisation and ad-libbing is often called performance or showing off. Spontaneity is called uncertainty and confusion. And these things are judged harshly by our critics. But what David said in 2 Samuel 6 is relevant here. What may seem humiliating and undignified, if it is done with a heart that is seeking to please God and celebrate before him, it gives God glory. And I'm done. Thank you. Okay. <laughs>